6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. the Greek word huios as sons rather than the similar Greek word technon which other writers use which actually means children Paul uses sons rather than children it's an equivalent term it's a style it's strictly a style issue but that's Paul's style the doctrine discussed in Romans 8.16 and Hebrews 10.15 are collinear the doctrines discussed in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 are collinear the writer says pray for us doesn't sound significant does it except there's he is the only one epistle writer that w- makes that statement. Only Paul, in his letters, says, pray for us. Not a big deal. It's strict, I'm strictly not talking doctrine here, just style. But it's interesting the style fits. Okay, there's a bigger issue. In the main epistles, we find there is an emergent phrase from Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. And we discover that the book of Romans is a description of who the just are. And Galatians explains how they shall live. And the book of Hebrews, on that they shall live by faith. What I'm pointing out to you here is that this phrase out of Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, the just is defined by Romans. It tells who the just are. And it's quoted in Romans 1.17. How shall they live? They shall li- how they- that's what Galatians is all about. And it's quoted in Galatians 3.11. And the final one, by faith, is Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith in the Bible. And just prior to that chapter starting in Hebrews 10.39, again we have this same Habakkuk 2.4. And that, of course, this suggests to me that at least implies that all three letters were written by the same guy. They are a trilogy amplifying the just shall live by faith. And that fray, that cornerstone, became the battle cry of the Reformation. And Paul's letters are behind it. You say, well, gee, Chuck, then that doesn't prove that one author wrote all three. If Paul didn't write Hebrews, there's even a bigger miracle because the Holy Spirit orchestrated whoever it did, so it would be part of this trilogy. So that's even a bigger miracle than I'm suggesting. So, okay. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, there's a reference that the writer of the epistle was was accompanied by Timothy. And we know that Timothy accompanied Paul all through several of his his passages. We do not have any record of him accompanying anybody else. That doesn't mean that he exclusively accompanied Paul, but we do not have any evidence of him accompanying anybody else. So again, there's no evidence. For, so why? So if Paul did write the book of Hebrews, why would he keep it anonymous? It was recognized by the first century church why he didn't sign it. His primary mission was as an apostle to the Gentiles, not the Jews. Whenever he spoke to the Jews, there was a riot. Right? 
the, the Roman soldiers had to arrest him to protect him from the, from the, the mobs. Yet he had this deep burden for his brethren. When you look at Paul's life, you can expect that sooner or later he would write an epistle to his, from his own heart to his own people. But whenever he tried to dress them, there'd be riots. The Jews were violently prejudiced against his ministry. He was hated by the Jews because he converted to Christianity. He was, they reputed his apostleship and led riots and so forth. But they also feared his attack against their ancient rituals and ceremonies. Because he's saying things that was not popular to the Jew. He never recovered the confidence of the, Jew, the Jewish side. And of course, he was also distrusted by many of the Christians because they remembered when he, as Saul, murdered them. Unlike his other epistles, nowhere in the book of Hebrews does Paul assert or defend his apostleship because that's not an issue. We know the reader, by the way, knew who the author was. He didn't sign it because he's not doing anything but expressing logic from their own scriptures. The book of Hebrews will stand or fall on the application of very critical verses all through the Old Testament making his point, not because of any authority he has. So he doesn't defend his apostles. He builds his entire thesis on Jewish arguments from the Old Testament passages. He exalts Christ, not his own apostleship. And it's based entirely on the Old Testament. And by the way, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that Paul's not signing it is deliberate in order to eclipse any anti-Pauline prejudices of the Judaizers. Even today, we've got fellowships around that love Christ, but they're all caught up in trying to keep the Torah. And uh, they have uh, to get around an anti-Pauline prejudice, even today. The fact that Paul wrote uh, 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 Hebrews is incidental. It's at best a footnote, one way or the other. Okay? Because there is an issue in Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9. Those that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. We need to understand what that's all about. Now, there are reasons that the text could not, that we could infer that the book is probably written before Paul's first imprisonment, but before his, after his first imprisonment, before his second. And, uh, it's clearly written before the, seven, the fall of the temple at 70 AD. And uh, that may have been one of the reasons that the epistle was written, to encourage those that were having difficulties before the temple fell. And so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. And to them that are without the law as without the law. Now, Paul will play whatever role it is in order to win whoever it is to Christ. To a Jew, he'll be a Jew. To those that are under the law, he'll be under the law. Those that are not under the law, he's not under the law. He'll do all he cares about is getting them to the Lord Christ. But the law of God, I might gain them that are without the law. I became, uh, uh, to the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made, I made all things to all men that I might, by all means, save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. The word partaker there is koinonos, partaker. But the Lord said unto him, 
No, this is in Acts chapter 9, Damascus Road. Paul is blinded. Ananias is take, instructed to, to deal with it by the Lord. The Lord said unto Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, God speaking, to bear my name before the Gentiles and to kings and the children of Israel. This gives Paul a mandate. Do right to Hebrews. If, you now, the early church fathers, Clement of Rome in the first century, copiously uses the book of Hebrews, adopting its words just as he does the other books of the New Testament, treats it as scripture. And uh, as our epistle claims authority on part of the writer, Clement's adoption of it extracts from its virtually sanctioning its authority, and this is in the apostolic age. So no doubt of its canonicity is what I'm trying to get at here. Clement of Alexandria refers it expressly to Paul, the authority of uh, Pantanus, chief of the catechetical school in Alexandria, and I think that's interesting. It's all in the Alexandria, which is, which is where Apollos came from, by the way. Saying that as Jesus is termed in it, the apostle sent to the Hebrews, Paul, through humility, does not in it call himself an apostle of the Hebrews, being an apostle of Galatians. In other words, Jesus is regarded as the apostle of the Jews, so Paul is not about to intrude on that office. That's his point. Eusebius writes about all of this in the first, uh, about 150 AD. And as the epistle of the Hebrews... He, Clement, he's referring to Clement, says that it's Paul's, but that it was written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language and that Luke translated carefully and published it to the Greeks. That consequently that there is found in the same color with regard to style in this epistle and the Acts, but it is not prefaced by Paul the Apostle with good reason. For, says he, as he was sending it to the Hebrews who had conceived a prejudice against him and suspected him, he very wisely did not repel them at the beginning by appending his name. That makes sense, even today. And he continues, then he goes on to say, but as the blessed presbyter before now used to say, since the Lord was sent to the Hebrews as being the apostle of the Almighty, Paul, out of modesty and having been sent to the Gentiles, does not inscribe himself apostle of the Hebrews, both because of the honor due to the Lord and because of its being a work of supererogation, in other words, assuming a, uh, uh, an office you don't deserve, uh, that, the, that he wrote also to the Hebrews being herald and apostle of the Gentiles. So that's the early church father's point of view. Let's set that all aside. Let's talk about who the readers are. We know they were Jewish. The quotations from the Old Testament settles any argument for a Jewish audience. They were Jewish believers. The main danger the author warns against is that going back to Judaism, the author clearly treats them as believers. He calls them brethren. He calls them beloved. They're partakers in the heavenly calling. They're partakers of Christ, of the Messiah. And certain worries is falling away due to an evil heart of unbelief and hardening of the seatless of sin are only applicable if the readers are believers. So we need to understand right up front throughout this whole book, we're talking about believers. There are many people that try to twist some of the surface and say, well, they maybe weren't really saved. That does violence to what the text says. These were believers. We need to understand that. It'll make the whole thing suddenly become very clear. Continuing, they, like the author, were second generation believers united by the us in Hebrews chapter 2, and distinguished from those who were eyewitnesses. In other words, they were believers, but not eyewitnesses is the point. And so, is, so is Luke and Paul, by the way. They, um, they have been believers for a long time and should now be teachers of the word, the writer admonishes. So these were people that should have been mature is the point. This is written not only to believers, but believers that Paul feels they should be by now more mature than they are. And... Uh, Although they've been believers for a long time, they have remained spiritually immature and have not progressed in the faith. That's really the thrust of the whole message. 
Readers are either wavering in their faith because of persecution, and they are readers who know the author. This is a very key point in chapter 13. We'll discover that the readers knew who the author was, even though it wasn't signed. That's telling. That's interesting. The occasion, of course, is that it was addressed to a Christian community of considerable size. So it probably first lived maybe in Jerusalem or the churches in Judea, and it may have included Galatia. It was written by someone who had been in bonds. That, Paul fits that one. And he's somebody who had been separated from the Jewish believers. That certainly explains Paul again. And this is why most scholars believe it was written by Paul when he was in the hired house in, in Rome in, in that first uh, occasion. There are five major warnings that we're going to deal with as the thing unfolds. The danger of drifting in chapter 2, that'll be next session. The danger of disobedience in chapter 3. Progress, the need for progress toward maturity in chapter 5 through 620. And that's the one that has this passage in it that confuses everybody. It has 16 different um, variations of that. And we'll deal with the three primary ones and unsort that for you when we get there. Danger of willful sin in chapter 10, and the warning against indifference in chapter 12. Five key warnings. My main point at this stage is to realize the unity of these. These aren't little isolated trouble things. All five warnings are a unit. They go together and complement each other. Each builds upon the other. Once you understand that, it changes your perspective. Each intensifies until the fifth capstone. They all build up to that fifth one. So we're going to study that as we go then. The writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as an example of, for individual Christians. The exodus was a failure. The entire generation, except for two, didn't inherit. They were saved out of Egypt, but they didn't inherit. That's the lesson that the writer is going to hammer away on in his letter. Not that's not the only lesson. The exodus, there was a redeemed people. They failed to heed God's instruction and was judged for its disobedience. And the implication by the writer is that's true of the Christian also. He can not lose his salvation, but he can lose his inheritance. So all these were written to the believers. They do not represent any chance of a loss to the past aspect of salvation. Being believers, they are justified. Justification is behind them. That's not an issue in this letter. The eternal security of the believer is thus established. The warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. This is all about overcoming. It's all about persevering. It's not about losing your justification. The warnings represent a very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards that will be offered to the believer and revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. All of us as believers are looking forward to the rapture. What's the very next event after the rapture? Judgment seat of Christ. We'll all stand there. And we'll have an opportunity to be rewarded or to suffer loss. Not the loss of our, our, our uh, um, salvation. No, no. Just because what you are justified, you've got your passport stamped for access to heaven. Access to a hotel does not mean you inherit the hotel, by the way. Okay? So, to whom is it written? The original recipients, were, as I say, were Christians. Each warning is going to substantiate the fact that they're Christians that it's dealing with. And the correct interpretation of this book hangs on the answer to one question. Were the people addressed, believers or unbelievers, saved, unsaved, or half-saved? <laughs> Being facetious here. That's the whole key that will be challenged. All the way, we'll, we'll accept that challenge all the way through. Two dozen times 
the author includes himself in the warning's admonition. Was the, author, was the author saved? I think so. He's not sweating his being saved in the sense of justification. He is sweating his sanctification. And we'll talk about that. And does God urge... See, in chapter 10, he's going to urge um, to hold fast to your profession. Would God urge an unconverted, half-saved professor to hold fast to his false profession? Obviously not. That, that just dramatizes what, what I'm saying. Why the warnings then? Well, because God is love and mercy, saw fit to move the author of the Hebrews to warn his readers. God moved the writer to warn you of these five warnings. The author himself loved the recipients enough to warn them of impending danger. This is a love epistle. It's a stern one, but it's a love epistle. God wanted the future readers also to understand the grave danger that accompanies apostasy. We need to understand that. What's at stake? What are these believers going to lose, forfeit or suffer? Not salvation. John 10. We went through that when we went to the book of Romans, Romans 8. John 10. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. My father is greater, greater than all. No man can pluck them out of my father's hand. And as I like to, in, in the spirit of Walter Martin, suggest that if God, if you can lose your salvation, then I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. That's, I don't know if Walter really said that or not, but it sounds like Walter. Rewards are we talking about. Rewards of the judgment seat of Christ is the entire issue throughout this whole thing. And that makes it very important to every one of us in this room because most of us probably have a very incomplete perspective of what the kingdom is really going to be all about. We cannot escape this by applying it to others. The burden of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell, but it's the bringing of sons to glory. People who are saved to inheritance. That's what it's all about. This raises another issue I want to nail early in our whole preparation here, and that's this term salvation. Among our students at the Institute, I work hard to try to get them not to use that word because it's misleading. We can be saved from a burning building. We can be saved from an unsavory marriage or something. I mean, you can think of, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things you can be saved that have nothing to do with soteriology. Individuals here in this letter are identified as shall be heirs of salvation. A future salvation is in view, not a past. Justification with respect to everlasting life is not applicable because it's a past event. John 3.18, John 5.24, Ephesians 2 hammers that if you are a believer, you already have eternal life. If It's not eternal if you can lose it. So that's, you can't lose it. That's being justified. Why? Because 100% was done by Christ. You accomplished nothing. You didn't do anything. But by accepting what Christ completed for you, you are justified. There's much more to come, but you have your passport to heaven has been stamped. Those justified already possess everlasting life as a gift, not as a conditional inheritance. Inheritance can be conditional. Justification, not so. This, the salvation here in view is eschatological, meaning it's in the future. That's not talking about justification. You already have that. We're talking about the future. As companions, the readers are going to participate in the millennial kingdom. That's what is all about. I want you to remember, you know, Rodemacher, whenever we meet together once a year at the pre-trib gang, um, Rodemacher usually works, he gets up, Earl Rodemacher, he'll say, I am saved, 
I am being saved, and I will be saved. And he says that deliberately to confuse people because he's highlighting that salvation has three tenses. He is saved, he's been saved, but he's also being saved, and he's going to be saved. And what does he mean by that? He's saying justification, that's past tense. That's a gift of God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. Plenty of scriptures on that one. Sanctification, that's the present tense of of salvation. It's a progressive, it's a work in progress that involves the faith and the works of the believer. Your sanctification will be manifest by your behavior. Behavior matters. If you're before justified, no. Once you're justified, behavior counts. Behavior matters. It makes a difference. And it's going to lead to glorification that's yet future. That's a result of all the previous aspects. All believers will be glorified that is given a resurrection body like Christ. But some will have more glory than others. And that's what the book of Hebrews is going to deal with. Past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. Present tense, separation from the power of sin. The book of Romans hammers that. Sin need not reign anymore in your life. You have the power to overcome it through the Holy Spirit. And the future tense, separation from the presence of sin. And that's later. That's future. Three different tenses. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We encourage our students to try to use those three words rather than salvation, because salvation can mean many things to many people. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Keywords. They all are the three tenses of a paradigm that we would call salvation collectively. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares us righteous. We haven't changed yet. Sanctification makes us righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. Just to elaborate. The readers of this epistle already are justified. It's the future work of salvation attached to Christ's coming kingdom that the inheritance is afforded to the believer, and that's what's in view in this epistle. And in order to attain this future, faith and works are required. There are those about about to inherit our Christians. There are three principal views, theologically. The Calvinistic view, many of you know people who are Calvinistic. The Arminian view, which is in some respects different than that. And a third view we're going to talk about, the partaker view. Calvinism. Most of you that have studied it realize that it has a series, five key doctrines, five points of Calvinism. And all of these are defendable from the text. All of these are attackable. And that's why there's such a debate about Calvinism. But the real issue we're going to deal with is the last, perseverance of the saints. These are memorized by many, by, by the tulips. Total recovery, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. That, that, those are the five points of a five-point Calvinist. Most people are not all five, they're four, but I'm getting all that. This doesn't, so, this is just a summary of many different views that would be clustered under this label. According to Calvinism in general, all true believers will persevere to the end. If you don't persevere to the end, you really weren't saved. That's the argument. Perseverance, thus, is a test of a final test of reality. Well, the problem with this view is you really won't know if you're saved until the end. You see? Because if you make it to the end, well, you were predestined to be there. If you didn't make it, well, I guess you weren't saved. Calvinists generally don't don't, don't invest in evangelistic meetings, so they figure you're predestined. 
And uh, th that's uh, perhaps an exaggeration. But this effectively denies the assurance of salvation. Proof is always in the future for the Calvinist. You won't know for sure until the end. That's why some people call that view the experimental predestinarian view. It's only by completing the experiment you find out whether you are predestined. And that sounds like it's self-contradictory, and it is, in a sense. The Arminian has just a different view. He believes that the justification can be lost. Believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior. So unless you persevere, you really weren't saved. A believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work and the individual's decision to continue the faith and not fall away. Notice the and. The Armenian, it's grace plus works that get you there. It, in effect, they don't mean it this way, but in effect denies that Christ's work was complete. Works play a key role for the Armenian, too. So there's similarities. Both these acknowledge that Christ's completed work is absolutely essential. Both acknowledge the importance of works in the life of the believer. Both do. They're both similar. They've been fighting for hundreds of years, these two views. But they're surprisingly similar when you really examine them. And these, although this direct opposition has endured for centuries, both of them are dangerously close to the Roman Catholic view which, in which salvation is, is uh, by works, which, of course, we reject. So there's two divisions. Calvinism, their concept of eternal security really being this experimental predestinarian thing. And Arminians, Salvation can't be lost. These two views are considered the opposite poles of a view, of any person's view. There's a middle view that we're going to explore, and that is going to be called the partakers, partaking view. These are the metakoi. These are the ones that have overcome. The book of Revelation has seven specific promises to the overcomer. And my wife's book, The Kingdom of the Power and the Glory, is going to focus on the tools to become an overcomer. And now the overcomer, the partakers, are eternally secure. They're justified. They rely entirely on Christ's completed work for access to heaven. No question about that. But they make a distinction between entering heaven and inheriting. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.